Welcome to Behavioral Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. Behavioral Grooves is the podcast where Kurt and I record and share discussions with behavioral scientists from around the world, as well as the men and women who apply behavioral science principles to their work in marketing, sales, human resources, as well as user and customer experience jobs. Before we share the conversation we had with our guest, we have a favor to ask. Yes, we do, Kurt. Behavioral Grooves shares our conversations with listeners in over 100 countries. We've been recognized by Chartable as a global top 20 social science podcast, in part because of our more than 150 episodes we've published since we started in the fall of 2017. Yeah. So Tim is making two points. First, we are committed. Second, we're sharing meaningful and important content that you can apply to your work and your life. Yeah, Kurt, like our conversation with Bob Cialdini in episode 50, where we talked about egoism versus altruism and why people make pro-social donations, or or getting that rare chance to talk to George Lowenstein in episode 67 during a series we recorded at Carnegie Mellon University. Or the series we recorded at the University of Pennsylvania's Nobet conference that episodes were, what, 102 to 106, and you don't want to miss out on our conversation with Rory Sutherland in episode 107 or Annie Duke's comments on the pandemic in episode 125 during our 23-episode series on the COVID-19 crisis, which is still going on. It is. Our listeners tell us that they benefit from the ideas that they get from these great thinkers. Some carry these ideas into their lives, some into the classrooms, and so we come back to our request. Tim and I invest a great deal of time and effort in the podcast, and we'd like your help. We have set up a Patreon site where our listeners can help us out with a subscription, and we already have some sugar in the pot. Sugar in the pot, Tim. Nicely (laughs) written there. But we need your help to make it grow. There's a link uh, to the patron site in the show notes, and we ask that you just take a moment, click on it, and join the community of those who are supporting Behavioral Grooves. Okay, Kurt. So back to our guest. Right. Dan Hill is an internationally recognized expert on the role of emotions in politics, business, sports, and popular culture. He pioneered the use of facial coding the analysis of facial expressions in market research and has done work with over half of the world's top 100 consumer-oriented companies. He's even received seven U.S. patents related to facial coding, and he is an author on top of that. Well, we wanted to talk to Dan about one of his latest books called Famous Faces Decoded, A Guidebook for Reading Others. Now, unless you've never been lied to in your life, you know that words don't tell the whole story. Our faces often give away our true emotions. Frankly, we needed a break from our series on coronavirus, and Dan was just the balm we were looking for. So stay tuned and check out Dan's insights into real emotions of the Beatles, Jimi Hendrix, Prince, Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, and you guessed it, Donald Trump. (laughs) Now sit back, relax, and enjoy a fine glass of facial coding while you listen to our discussion with Dan Hill. Dan Hill, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Well, thank you so much. Looking forward to the conversation. I was always. My gosh, it's good to see your shining face back here in our home state. This is really good. Yeah, on a cold cold day, so I really know I'm home in Minnesota. (laughs) I heard that there's a prediction of snow for this weekend. Snow on Sunday. Snow on Sunday for Mother's Day. Well, we live live in tundra territory. I started my company in San Diego, and I would always fly home there and going, oh, this is the color part of the Wizard of Oz, which means I grew up in the black and white part, of course. (laughs) Of course. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) 
okay, so we want to talk about uh, about uh, one of your three latest books, and this is Famous Faces Decoded, uh, because it's got a lot of music stuff, and frankly, that's you know, Kurt was just kind enough to go along with me on that. Uh, we were kind of focused <laughs> the discussion there. But um, but for readers who have not had a chance to pick it up, and they should, can you give us just a quick summary of, of uh, what what it's about? Sure. Famous Faces Decoded really operates on three levels. If you want to just be shallow and totally fun, hey, it's full of celebrity gossip. You can learn stories and, and insights about people you think you know, and you probably don't actually know their backstory. Uh, so they're from you know, rock and roll. They're from uh, Hollywood, business, athletes, all sorts of things. So that's the first level. I'd say the second level is it's really an EQ primer because I'm looking at these people through the lens of what emotions do they show most characteristically. Uh, everyone has a signature expression. As George Orwell, the writer, said, by the age of 50, a man has the face he deserves. Mm. We, we all have muscle memory. We all have, you know, we're habitual creatures. They're things we go to. They're kind of our default mode. And the third and deepest level is I offer up this, the secret sauce of facial coding. What specific expressions show which emotions? So a reader could take it at any one of those three levels as they see fit. And and let's just, if you could, just talk a little bit about your qualifications. You don't come to this as a guy who just happened to be interested in it, and then you started writing books. You uh, you have a PhD. You trained in, in, in this realm, right? Uh, yes. There's a Dr. Ekman who is really kind of the expert on facial coding. So I went to him in 1998 and said, this is cool stuff, and I'd like to learn it. Because the other person who knows a lot about it is named Charles Darwin, and he's not available for conversation. Oh. So if you don't mind, the two of us would like to sit down. Uh, what I've historically done is applied facial coding, particularly to uh, market research for work for more than half the world's top 100 advertisers. But that's always groups of people. And honestly, what I want to do with this book was delve deeply into individuals as opposed to collections of people. And then I said, well, why not choose really interesting, famous people uh, just to make it more relatable and fun for everybody? All right. So give us a little bit of an overview of the book uh, and who's in it and what are some of the, the highlights from your perspective? And we'll dig into some specifics, I'm sure. So the format of the book is that there are seven emotions you can pick up from facial coding. So the approach emotions of anger and happiness and sadness, as in wanting to be hugged, uh, are the most dominant emotions, most prevalent emotions. So I start there. And then there's a section on the kind of the adversive emotions of disgust and contempt where you're backing away from somebody. Uh, that, that will bring us to talking about Prince, for instance. And then finally, there are the you know kind of frightened, reactive emotions of surprise and fear. Wow. Okay. So you, when you're looking at, uh, when you're doing facial coding, you're often looking at, at a part of an expression or just an expression. And these things last a very short amount of time. Right there, it's transitory. Our faces are constantly changing. How how do you know that a particular expression is indicative of how someone is feeling, or even even greater, reflective of their personality? No, that's a really fair question. So, I mean, I'm trying to hear in this book go after people's emotional DNA. So, it is certainly true that in the moment, someone may react to stimulus X, some trigger, some event that happened to try to safeguard myself. And of course, I can't say that I have the absolute certainty of knowing who somebody is because human beings are complicated. Uh, there's a wonderful comment from Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher who said, 
out of the twisted timber of humanity, no straight thing was ever made. Mm. So I, I'm interested in, in the warp in the wood. I'm interested in the knots in the wood. Uh, but I am trying to get some bead on people. So to do this work, I just went down through the Google images for people. I typically looked at, say, 50 to 75 photographs per person. So I took photographs as opposed to video because with 173 people in this book, it was a lot of work already. And the video is just going to be that much slower. So I just went down. I, I didn't take it from the same occasion. If there was more than one photograph from that particular concert or press conference, uh, I tried to stay away from the things that I thought were clear glad handing, mm -hmm. you know, where they're mugging for the camera as much as I could. I love the candid camera stuff. And I went with what was really the prime of their career. So when I took the Beatles on, I really took the Beatles a little bit from their childhood, but otherwise just as long as they were a group. I didn't take it once the Beatles broke up because they're most famous, of course, for them as a group. And that's what I wanted to focus on. So anybody, you know, Elton John, I took really the five years where he was most preeminent in the music field, so on and so forth. Okay, so let's let's talk about music. Let's talk about musicians. <laughs> Since you you don't want to go in the sports figures or the uh, actors or actresses, Tim. You want to go right to the musicians, really. Well, and I know I know that you've done work with sports figures too, but that just doesn't matter to me. It really <laughs> matters to Kurt. <laughs> so you can ask. Let's about talk that. some mus musicians. There you go. Okay, so Beatles. Uh, not only you know one of the the greatest groups, greatest songwriters, uh, tremendous you know body of work. Tell us about their uh, their facial coding and their emotions. Well, obviously, um, in some senses, they were very happy creatures because they did want to be successful. Uh, you know, George Harrison actually came to the U.S. and scouted out you know, the timing for when the Beatles would try to break big. Uh, John Lennon used to always encourage the group and say, we're going to go to the top of the charts, you know, just hang in there, boys. We're going to make this together. So there was a lot of happiness, but there's some really interesting differences within the group, of course. One of the really important ones is when I look at happiness, I look at four levels of happiness. Joy is the, the top of it. It's where the eye, uh, the muscle around the eye tightens. You get the twinkle in the eye. One level down is pleasure, the really broad smile. Then you get the social smile, what I call satisfaction. And then the Filene's bargain basement of happiness is the acceptance smile, the begrudging <laughs> smile that's like one half the face. And if you're doing video, really short in duration. So for John Lennon, who was, at least for a while, in many ways, the happiest of the Beatles in the Beatles phase, the interesting thing to me is he was a candidate for what I call tilt. Tilt means that I think if a person's really well-balanced, if they're at the, that upper echelon of happiness, joy and pleasure should be in fairly equal measure between the two. But with John Lennon, even though he had the broad social smile, so broad that I called it pleasure, he almost never got to joy. And if you think about his subsequent career and his first solo album where he really went into all the psychotherapy and stuff of, you know, the Beatles are dead, my mom's dead, you know, everything's terrible, uh, only Yoko and me matter. Uh, I mean, you know, a lot of his angst came out and George Harrison said, you know, after that album came out, my God, I didn't know John was so screwed up. And I, I, cleaned, <laughs> I, cleaned up the, I cleaned up the language a little bit, but that's basically what he said. <laughs> yeah, um, I think you're paraphrasing. So, yeah, yeah, so the, the lack of joy in John really is interesting and the other person in the musical field who really had this tilt syndrome whitney houston and we all oh. know how that story ended yeah so well, now, well back to john now you know in the book you people voted people believe that they saw happiness in john yes why and is that why is there this disconnect 
Well, I think because I think, well, they're stars and they're rich and they're, they must be famous because I'd like to be rich and famous too. I mean, that was the most common misperception is how frequently in the book when I allow people to survey and say, what do you think are the two characteristic emotions? You know, they went to happiness all the time. They even did that for Johnny Cash. Oh, wow. wow yeah, which is like, myth. I mean, like, oh my God, don't you see he's the man in black? Let, let, <laughs> let's, let's start with sadness, please, you know, not happiness. So it's, people are just very fallible. I mean, we, we are not, you know, Sherlock Holmes. We are, we are Watson. And you might yeah. remember Sherlock Holmes says to Watson at one point, you have an instinctive grasp of the obvious. Yeah. Well, people don't even have an instinctive grasp of that sometimes. <laughs> they just they just miss totally. Oh my gosh. So all right, so the other Beatles. So you have John Lennon who who never gets up to joy. Yep. Oh, what about Paul? What about Ringo? And what about George? Well, George was actually probably the most interesting biggest surprise for me because i just took on this whole assumption that yes he was the quiet beetle and he yeah. did well my guitar gently weeps and all these you know sweet songs my sweet lord everything else well lo and behold you know george has an anger problem oh. really did his his lower eyelids would tighten in anger his mouth would purse in anger and i'm sure some of this came from you know, being the third wheel to to john and and paul but um you know Think about his songs, you know, Don't Bother Me and Tax Man. I mean, there was a lot of anger in George. And uh, I think that made him susceptible to saying, I need to change as a person. I need to grow as a person. And I think that's why he really went to India and followed that whole route, because I think at some level he knew that he had another level he could and should get to as a person. And then the great music came, because the early music, you know, it's not so great, actually. <laughs> I mean, he once said that he had like a hundred songs that didn't make it onto the Beatles' early albums. I'm like, show them to me. You know, I, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm not sure they're actually there. Paul is interesting because initially he was one of the saddest, least upbeat of the Beatles. You know, both John and Paul really bond over the fact they lost their mothers, mm. and I think for Paul, uh, it left a deeper mark. Uh, he was around his mom more than John was around his mom, who was really raised by his aunt, and uh, his mom was a bit of a, a wild character, which John picked up in no small amount. So Paul really made the biggest shift. He was the least positive of the Beatles early on in many ways, and he ended up being the happiest Beatle because, of course, in the last phase of the Beatle, Beatles, he was running the show. Yeah, I mean, he, he, he told really them did. all, he, he'd call them up and say, it's time to go to the Abbey Road Studios today. And they go, oh, crap. And they'd get in John's you know car and they'd drive over and they'd get stoned or go on an acid trip on the way over or God knows what. But uh, Paul was the workaholic. Paul was the one who wanted to drive them. He, he loved the late phase of the Beatles. The other Beatles were dropping away a bit. Well, and I get where George was the silver medalist when it came to songwriting, you know, that that uh, that that certainly never really worked for him. But the, the sadness for Paul uh, just it's did I say George? I, I meant George. I meant George is the silver medalist. OK, yeah. just, uh, but Paul, I mean, he was really on top of the world for for so much of even the even the work with the Beatles. What do you, what do you think was the undercover? You know, can, can you dive just a little bit deeper on that, Dan? Well, I looked at the Beatles really in three phases, you know, um, 
early on because I did look at their childhood in their case there was one real exception in the book because I wanted to do the deep dive because mm-hmm. I love the Beatles and then I took kind of the Beatlemania phase I, I left out the middle phase of Sgt. Pepper's and Magical Mystery Tour because I hate Magical Mystery Tour <laughs> that, that like, you know, the album okay. I do not want to listen to so okay. I, I left that out and then I took the late phase from 68 to 70 so you know when I talk about that early phase for Paul and being you know not very positive and downbeat that's really before they start to record and and start to happen as a group so you're really talking about his childhood at that point Mm. and and so i think it really just comes overwhelmingly down to i lost my mom and you know paul was a really homebody um you know he he loved his family that we sit around together and play music his dad was a musician so i i just think that struck him in a way where john was just you know more cocky and wilder and and looking around you know you know john was not as centered in relationships other than yoko in some ways you know just ask just ask cynthia she would she would have to tell you the same yeah no (laughs) kidding okay so what about uh, ringo We, we we haven't talked about ringo uh, Ringo is just kind of in the mix. I mean, there's nothing. He's not particularly angry. He's not particularly sad. He's not particularly exuberant. He just kind of bounces along. You know, that's why he's the perfect complement for the group because everybody could get along with Ringo until I think finally, you know, John said to himself, well, I'm talking to Ringo when I could be talking to Yoko, which one is more interesting? Yeah. You know, and, and he moved on. But he was just the perfect companion for the group because he was, he was affable enough, but there wasn't a high or low necessarily, despite a really difficult childhood you know he was very sick as a child and lucky to pull through in a lot of ways and the poorest of the Beatles I mean all of the Beatles other than John you know didn't come from very good social economic status but Ringo was certainly the poorest wow so kind of middle of the road just kind of like his drumming huh uh, yeah, he, 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 he hit, well, he, he held the beat. He did fine. I, I'm yeah. not very musically talented, so I'm I'm gonna be the last person to put down. Oh, Ringo. I, yeah, I shouldn't I, mean, I shouldn't say a word because yeah. I can't. I'm I am the same. I'm probably worse than you. You are at least in a punk band. I I can't even say that much. Well, today, well, I, I would make Pete Best look like Beethoven by comparison. So. <laughs> well, today, man, every time I see Ringo, he just looks happy as a clam. But he that does. M- might be because he's just remarkable remarkably wealthy and he is still married to Barbara Bach. So those are two good things. Yeah. Well, you know, in the end, you'd have to say that the two happiest Beatles overall or two consistently happiest Beatles are the ones who lived the longest. Yeah. And that would track two demographic studies uh, tied in with psychology of, you know, what kind of emotions are characteristic view. Happier people tend to get to superior solutions more quickly and they tend to live longer. It's just, it's just a fact. All right, so let's talk about some of the other musicians in the book, since Tim wants to go down this musician uh, uh, genre. So what are some ones that stand out for you, some other uh, musicians that maybe surprised, uh, surprising uh, or different than what you had maybe expected? Well, I don't know if it's a surprise, but I love the correlation, which I didn't know to look for, which was between Hendrix and Prince. Okay. Because even though people, you know, went to, they did say anger for for Jimi Hendrix, and they were correct in that it was anger and contempt, but it was also those two emotions for Prince. So there's a lot of attitude there (laughs) because contempt means, you know, I don't trust you. And of course, you know, 
Prince went through all of his battles with the record companies and Hendrix, you know, got shafted in all these groups he was in, you know, playing as a musician before he finally broke through. Uh, so there's a lot of contempt for who they're dealing with and whether they trust them. There's a lot of ambiguity about, you know, I'm a, I'm a black African-American star in an industry with white executives and particularly in the age of Hendrix playing to mostly white hippie crowds. So there's just a whole lot going on there. And anger is an emotion in many ways is about, I want to control my destiny. I want to make progress. I want to set boundaries. I want to do it on my own terms. I mean, you just start reading about Hendrix and Prince's career and personal stories and anecdotes, and that just fits them to a T. It also makes sense that they were both just incredible workaholics, so incredibly demanding of themselves. I, I read stories about Hendrix and how he would practice three to four hours every day. That and and he his comment about that was, I kind of have to do that just to keep up. So it wasn't about trying to actually get better. He was really just trying to kind of keep up with his his own ability. And and I, I did some work at Paisley Park a bunch of years ago and Prince was there at pretty much every session that I had at nine in the morning, Prince was there. At at ten o'clock midnight Prince was there. He worked constantly. He's just one of the hardest working musicians that I've ever I've ever met. And and I, is there a correlation between this this anger and and contempt and workaholicism? Oh, I think there can be because anger and conscientiousness uh, actually in many ways go together because conscientious means you want to take care of the details. Well, anger is you want to be in control of your life. Well, if you want to be in control of your life, you have to be in control of your details as well. And you're trying to make progress under your own powers. And so it just, it, it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, anger manifests itself physically and you want to hit out, uh, you know, physically, verbally. Uh, you know, they both had really entangled relationships with the music industry. That's yeah. an understatement of the year. Yeah, yeah, truly. What, how good are, are we in general to, to move away from the book specific or, or the specific biographies, but how good are we at detecting deceit? We're not very good at any of these, really. I mean, we're we're fairly good at happiness, uh, but I'll give you several different correlations. So, so one is uh, at various conferences over the years, business conferences, I've asked people. I've said, "Here are the seven emotions, seven core emotions." Here's a one-word descriptor. I didn't even play games to give them like eight options for the mix and match. Just seven to seven. And on average, in the various times I try this at conferences with a lot of people involved. 35% accuracy just for identifying what are the emotions and what do they mean. Wow. So, so the, the degree of emotional literacy, first of all, is not very high. And then you get into how well we pick out these emotions and others. And, you know, you'd be lucky to get to 50-50 for most people. We just seem to want to be lied to in life. We, we take the words and we run with them, even though there's no reason to, because behavior speaks louder than words and actions speak louder than words. And in your face, there's action. There are muscle movements that reveal these emotions, uh, sometimes a single emotion, sometimes more than one emotion is going on. But it's really worth paying attention to. Now, I would say just one extra thing here. Uh, guys are not quite as good as women at picking things up. And the really key to that is guys are terrible at picking up sadness. Oh they my just, gosh. They just don't recognize sadness. And I think that makes a lot of sense from a behavioral economics, just kind of be, uh, evolutionary psychology point of view. Guys historically to simplify went out on the hunt. Well, when you're on the hunt, you, get, you need to be moving action. Sadness slows you down physically and psychologically. 
It's like nature's rearview mirror. You're trying to ponder and understand something. So that doesn't work so well out on the hunt. But back at the campfire, if the women are there with the children and making the meal, it's all about the interactions, the eye contact, the empathy, recognizing when your child's in distress. There, sadness is really valuable to pick up because if your child's not happy, there may be something physically wrong with them, for instance, or psychologically some hindrance to them. So women are, the studies seem to indicate that women could be as much as twice as good at picking out sadness as the guys are. Otherwise, they're about even. Wow. That is pretty amazing. And and I'm sitting here thinking about my own life, and I'm you prob- I probably fall into that category, right? <laughs> Where I am not good at picking up sadness. I'm like going, ah, I just low past it. And my wife is sitting there going, <laughs> <laughs> join me, join me here. Well, you know, the thing is I, I say that emotions are always an away game for guys because, because you know, w- women, women talk about emotions and their relationships are much more candid among their friends than, than guys tend to be. Um, and so it's just much more central to the lives. I mean, on business trips, I sometimes sit in a restaurant, I'll overhear a conversation. If it's two women talking versus two guys talking, you know, the subject matter is much more varied and much more intimate typically among the women than the guys. Now I would add in terms of accuracy as facial coders, left-handed guys are for whatever reason, slightly better than right-handed guys. And I do happen to be left-handed. Um, now my, my only, my only theory for this is because as a left-hander, you're in a right-hander's world and maybe it just makes you try to fit in or understand or, you know, why, why everything's so screwy as far as you're concerned. We should um, get a, a neuroscientist on this discussion because I bet, the, or I'm not bet, I shouldn't bet, but, but there's probably a possibility that neuroscience might have something to play in this too, because of the, the, you're, you're more dominant on the opposite side of your brain too. Yeah. There's, there's some sort of screwy wiring, you know, I just might as well <laughs> confess it right now. <laughs> Let, let's get that out on the table. So uh, you, you were talking about, um, about trying to get to candid camera shots uh, back to the celebrities that you worked with 50 to 75 shots of each of them, and that you were more interested in getting these candid shots. How often are celebrities not on guard? Well, I'm sure as they go through their career and depending on their degree of of media savvy, they're very on guard and probably more so because I'm looking at different generations of artists. By now you got, you know, Taylor Swift and Kanye West who are very media savvy. And then you go back to the 1950s and you'd have someone like Little Richard who went from, you know, doing his outrageous rock and roll songs to becoming a pastor um, and still being wild. So, I mean, I think he just lived his life, you know, as it was going to be. And I don't think he really calibrated it a whole lot based on the media lens. But clearly, as we've gone through the years, I think that has changed. I would say, however, that with facial coding, you have to remember that the face is the only place in the body where the muscles attach right to the skin. So it is quick, real-time behavior, and you can try to mask it with a smile. You can try to go to the poker face, but it's a really sensitive part of the face. I mean, it's been said by someone that the most valuable 25 square inches of territory on the planet is in the middle of our face from our eyes down to the mouth. I Mm. mean, it's just so alive with data that tells us who we are and who we're dealing with. Even yeah. though, even though you you noted that Joe Biden has got a smile that uh, pretty much rides the same smile regardless of what's actually going on inside. 
Yes, and he rides it for too long because a, a real expression will last for about three to four seconds. If someone laughs at your joke for more than four seconds, Kurt, they're brown nosing you, just, just so you know for the future. I Tim, would never do that. Tim, oh my gosh, that's why you laugh for so long at my jokes. Oh. Yes, I, I think it's it's Biden's crutch. It's his safety valve. You know, I'll go to the smile and I'll keep it up there because how can they possibly attack a guy with this a guy with this winsome smile? But, yeah. you know, that's not going to stop Trump <laughs> come the debates in the fall. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think that is a real crutch or default mode for, for Biden in a lot of ways. Not that he's not a generally upbeat, happy guy, but the longevity of the expressions is not very natural. So do you see people that are in the public eye for a longer time? Do, do their facial expressions change as they, they uh, have that tenure within that time frame? Because they are in front of the camera and they are in such a public space that that they learn. And you mentioned Taylor Swift earlier. And I was just thinking, you know, she started off so young being, uh, you know, a cover of, of magazines, being interviewed, all of these things. You have to think that that changes how you have to approach, uh, you know, even just, you know, having that smile out there. Yeah, no. Well, I, I have a, a second home now out in Palm Springs, and I'm, I'm working my way around to answering your question, because <laughs> there was a really interesting thing that happened in Palm Springs. Originally, back in the 40s, when the town was really starting to boom, all the celebrities lived right in town. Mm. You know, and, and you could drive by the house of, you know, people from the mamas and the papas and Cher and, you know, Liberace, and they were all right there, Cary Grant. And then by the time we got to the 1960s, they had moved up into the foothills with gated communities. You know, mm. Frank Sinatra moved out of his place in Palm Springs, moved over to the adjoining community so he could hide from the fans. William Holden did the same thing. Mm. So when I went through and I looked at the 173 celebrities in the book, I did break it down by their era. And there was at least one really notable difference, which was when I go back to those four levels of smiles, the bargain basement version, the acceptance, yeah. that became much more predominant in the latest generation for us. And I think it's because they sometimes did break early. They are media savvy and they've also been besieged by the paparazzi mm. and they just don't get to the true smile nearly as much anymore. And it can be a Taylor Swift who definitely shows that tendency. It can be an Angelina Jolie, but it just, it, it covers a lot of people. And, and Beyonce is a strange one because she will go to the joy she does stand out a bit for that, but she also goes a lot to the acceptance. She doesn't go to the middle territory at all. She'll either flash <laughs> the big smile or like I'm putting up with all of this and I'm working hard because she does work hard too. And there's yeah. nothing there's nothing in between. Practically. Wow. It's kind of that's almost a sad statement on on the state of the the world as it is today, though, that just as you're famous, you you have to put on this. As you, you know, we talk about putting on a face, right? And so you're putting on that face in, in front of the public because that's the expectation and you can get so damaged otherwise through social media or publications or paparazzi, as you said. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And there's even, I'd also add in a socioeconomic lens, not that these people aren't all pretty much rich and famous, but where has American society gone? If you go back to the 60s, you know, we were the most affluent country in the world, easily no real competitor. Um, you know, we didn't have a lot of political bickering, relatively speaking. Uh, we had economic equality to a 
much greater extent than today. We're in a much more polarized, jaundiced, <laughs> adversarial sort of society. And, you know, we, we're social beings. The reason why we have such alert facial muscles and a larger brain is because when we moved from the stage of being hunters and gatherers and started living in villages, we needed now take into account all of our social interactions. That's literally the stage where the brain grew larger because we now had to store a lot more data like, do I have friend or foe here? Before it was obvious, the lion's your foe until, yeah. you, until you get to eat it. Until then, you know, watch out. <laughs> but, you know, in a village, you know, just like at work or anything else, you know, are you friend or foe? Are you going to shift? Are you going to be a, a frenemy? You know, what are we going to have here? Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a complicated existence. So we, we talked just a bit about Biden. Uh, what about Trump? What are, the, what are the observations that you make about Trump in the, in the variety of different situations that we see him in? Well, the thing that's going to surprise you is not the anger, because he does show anger. It's, the, it's a couple of things. It's the intensity of the anger, because here is someone who doesn't filter in public. I mean, the when he did the press conference regarding Charlottesville, there is an expression where you're really angry, where the mouth opens, but it has kind of like a horizontal funnel. The lips are really taut, and there's this horizontal funnel. It looks like a dog growling, like you just took its bone away. I almost never see that expression. In 20 years of doing this work, week in and week out, I have seen that expression, oh, less than 50 times easily, even in sporting events. I mean, that's it, 50 times. I believe on that particular press conference, he showed it twice. And, wow. and that, that is just really striking for the intensity of the anger. But the other thing is the sadness, which I did not expect going in. Uh, I just said, okay, I'm going to code this guy, see what he's about. Um, you know, his chin pulls up. That's probably his most signature expression, that, that chin flashes upward. But it's also the corners of the mouth will go down. You'll get a wince in the cheek. And it really goes to grievance. I mean, you could argue, and people have, that the Republican Party has become the party of old white men grievances. And what, what is Trump, an old white man with a lot of grievances? Now, it's obviously not about his wealth. Uh, or his attractive wife or anything else, I think it has to do with his ego. He could never possibly get enough acclaim. Mm. Yeah. Never, yeah. ever. And the psychologists who've looked at this really argue that his mom came down with a illness that kind of bedridden her for a couple of years when he was a boy at a probably fairly important developmental stage. So she was not particularly available in his life. And some people have made the argument that it's that. I want to think that he actually grew up with TV. I mean, he watched a lot of TV as a kid. He watches a lot of TV now. Uh, he's never had a lot of friends in life because he's been a bit of a bully and a braggart. And people haven't generally tended to like him a whole lot uh, on a personal level. So he's a very isolated guy. So you take the isolation, uh, maybe starting with his mom. You take this sense that I, I'm the world's greatest. I'm the stable genius, supposedly. And why doesn't everybody agree? And where's my Nobel Peace Prize, by the way? And <laughs> the guy is never going to be satisfied. So the, the most important thing, I think, is actually the sadness, which drives the ego and the lack of fulfillment. Uh, the next thing is probably the intensity of the anger. And the third one is the guy's a germaphobe. And he mm -hmm. does show disgust. His upper lip curls, uh, his nose wrinkles, uh, you know, there's that chin riser. Uh, I mean, he, he backs away from things. I mean, this is somebody who has not, by any stretch of the imagination, of course, given the virus, it makes sense. But has he even, forget about hugging a patient or a survivor of COVID-19, has he even gone to a hospital? 
you know, and stood even 20 feet apart from the nurses and the doctors and said, thank you so much for this. No, yeah. he ha- no, he has not. And he probably will not. He is a germaphobe. He doesn't shake hands. He doesn't drink liquor. Uh, he avoids people, situations. Uh, I would argue sometimes he avoids reality. But, um, <laughs> you know, so, so it goes. Well, in a recent Faces of the Week newsletter that you sent out, you compared the faces of three recent presidents in in sad situations. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, I wouldn't say George W. Bush is my idea of, of the world's greatest president of all time, but I would say he does step up post 9-11 and he's really good at going and hanging out with the firemen and looking them in the eye and getting up close and giving hugs to people. So once he got past that, you know, chicken little, the sky is falling moment when they interrupted him and told him about the Twin Towers coming down uh, while he was you know, reading a children's book at some school, I think, in Florida. Yeah. Once yeah. he got past that moment, at least an emotional terms, he was tremendous in that moment in terms of connecting with people. I mean, Obama, I mean, the tears in his eyes as he spoke about uh, the children who died, died in Newtown, Connecticut, you know, when you had the madman with the gun. I mean, tears in the eyes. Trump is all about showing strength. I mean, I don't think he would go there. I don't think he could go there almost in terms of a sense of compassion. Or just last night, I watched uh, Becoming with Michelle Obama, and they had a clip at one point just after the shooting at the church in South Carolina, and Obama's down there for the ceremony, and he's just as silent for a moment. And then he looks up, and he starts to sing Amazing Grace. And, you know, there's just, there, you know, his, his voice is welling with the emotion, but he also allowed himself a moment of silence. Does Does Trump ever allow himself a moment of silence? No, he doesn't seemingly. And that's the oddest thing about Trump's sadness, because sadness can be a very beneficial emotion. It's an opportunity to ponder something, to slow down and say, I made a mistake. That didn't turn out well. Maybe I should do it differently next time. So Trump is, you know, has this prevalent sadness, but it never seems to go to reflection or self-reflection or change of his mode of delivery. Uh, he's, he's stripped of all the benefits of sadness mm. and instead it's all just about the grievance. Mm. Um, and it's, it's just odd. I mean, I'm leaving this aside from any policy disputes, but just from a totally personal point of view, I mean, we've never had such a narcissistical president and, and probably couldn't. I mean, he's off the charts for narcissism and the germaphobe thing, I would say even extends to wanting the wall. I mean, you know, you could think about that in a germaphobe discussed sort of manner pretty easily. He took Richard Nixon's Southern strategy, which was probably really premised on black people, and he made it into a real Southern strategy. It's all the way to the South Hemisphere, and it's about, you know, Hispanic people. And him, him and Nixon did have a conversation uh, before Nixon died, and, and he really pumped his brain about strategies because he was already intent on running for president someday. I see a lot of similarity between those two men. Both wow. given, both given to sadness. By the way, so when you look at some of the other, um, let's let's we'll move off of, of musicians and move off politicians, sports player. Who is the most surprising sports player that you looked at? This is this is for me here. All right, so uh, anybody that that you looked at that was very different than what you had anticipated when you before you started. Wayne Gretzky. Oh yeah, because the answer is fear, fear, and more fear. Oh, my gosh. I did not expect that. And then I started reading and I went, 
that makes so much sense because I just went with the all the statistics and all the success yeah. and thought, oh my God, you know, this guy's, you know, lived an angelic existence. Well, you start digging into things, you find, first of all, you know, he was a phenom from really early on, which created a lot of jealousy among the parents of the other players. You know, and at one point, a coach, I think a baseball coach in in Ontario province said to Gretzky, you know, you won't live till Christmas. I mean, basically, he was going to get killed out of the raging jealousy of the of the parents in the town and in the league Uh, when he played pro. I mean, he was under underweight. I mean, he weighed many pounds less than the average NHL player. And he didn't have a lot of muscles, which is why, you know, his sense of vision on the hockey rink was so great for him. But they used to do these strength tests up at the Edmonton Oilers. He came in last on the squad every single time. So, (laughs) you know, he he, he needed a goon enforcer to protect him out on the ice. Uh, But yeah, but it was fear. It was it was fear. And I did not expect that. I mean, you could you could have knocked me over with a feather. Oh. All right. So I, I, I do have to ask because Michael Jordan has just with the whole ESPN thing has been in the news lately. What 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 are some of the Michael Jordan pieces uh, that kind of stand out? Well, I watched some of Last Dance. So I'm going to take it even broader to the three amigos on that okay. team. So, okay. you know, with Jordan, you, you have the eyes wide. I mean, that is a sign of both surprise and anger. Mm. So the surprise is great for an athlete because – you know, the eyes go wide, the eyebrows lift. It increases your field of vision. It gives you a chance to see the court better in this case. I mean, that that is fantastic as an emotion that correlates to opportunities for success. The anger speaks for itself. I mean, talk yeah. about a driven person. Uh, you know, he wanted to succeed. I think the interesting thing there, just like George Harrison going to India and saying, I need to change, improve, lift my game as a person. And then all the, the great songs from While My Guitar Gently Weeps onward started to spill out of the guy. Well, the same thing with Jordan. You know, he could run anger day and night, but he was never going to get a championship unless he brought his teammates into the fold. He needed to give them some space, some room to operate. So then you look at Scottie Pippen, and actually Scottie Pippen, if I had to choose an emotion for him, it's sadness. It makes a lot of sense that Scottie Pippen on his own, when Jordan wasn't in the picture, when Pippen moved on in his career, really couldn't carry a team on his back. Anger was not his characteristic emotion. He was more introverted. He was a little more shy. Uh, He was a little more self-reflective using sadness in a beneficial way. And then you had Rodman. I mean, (laughs) my God. I mean, the guy is just, you know, a ball of energy. I mean, he's, he's crazy. He's phenomenal. I mean, fantastic rebounder. But his eyes were pretty wide. He would, he, he didn't do this by accident. He sat around and watched video of his opponents. He actually calibrated based on the kind of shots someone would make, how far did their ball tend to go off the rim? Did it just like fall off the rim? Did it bounce four feet off the rim, three feet, six feet? How hard did they clank it when they didn't make it? Um, so he was fascinated in that. Where did people position themselves? He watched a lot of video, probably more than anybody on that team. He was just a videoholic. Um, and he also was just really happy. You just watch him like snagging another rebound and like dishing it out without looking and no look, you know, short pass off to one of his teammates. I mean, the guy just loved being a pain in the ass for the other team. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. Very fascinating. So three, three very different personalities. I would say essentially surprise and anger followed by sadness and Pippin followed by some more surprise, but joy in the case of Rodman. 
with wow. with some anger. Not that he wasn't, you know, averse to throwing some elbows and stuff. You know, he, he had been a you know Detroit Piston after all, one yeah. of the bad boys. <laughs> so he could certainly throw an elbow. But he was having the time of his life. You know, winning's fun. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Can we wrap up with uh, a, a quick ranking of the Beatles albums? Well, for oh. me, <laughs> we have to get back to music. I know, but but this is going to be so controversial. I know that you know we're, we're going to get some some responses on this. Well, All right, go I, ahead. I, I actually have to go with the White Album because they are oh. breaking out as individuals. I mean. Dear Prudence and While My Guitar Gently Weeps are fabulous songs. There are some absolute clunkers on that album. No wonder, you know, George Martin walked out in disgust and frustration more than once. But it's a really interesting album. I'd have to put Rubber Soul second because it's the contrast to White Album. It's as consistent as can be. It's wonderful. There's practically not a bad song on the album, except for maybe, you know, John's last nasty song about Run For Your Life. Yeah. Uh, other than that, it's a wonderful album. There are some really nice moments in Revolver. I love She Said, She Said. I love Taxman. There's some really cool stuff in Revolver, but Paul's already getting soft with some kind of drippy songs that I can barely survive. <laughs> so, so that doesn't work so well. So that, that'd be the top ones. I, I hate Magical Mystery Tour. That is at the bottom. I actually do not love Sgt. Peppers. I know that's heretical, but I do not love Sgt. Peppers. I love A Day in the Life, and I love Fixing a Hole. You know, I think that's a w wonderful song by, by Paul. Okay. Um, but, um, you know, some of the other stuff, you know, Mr. Kite, nah, thank you very much. <laughs> Well, I, I, there's a lot of experimentation. I'm a little sad that Revolver didn't make it closer. I mean, it's in the in the top three. I'm glad to hear that. But I think that there was such a huge change in styles. There were so many new influences happening at, uh, on Revolver that really brought their sound to a whole new and, and their songwriting, I think, to a whole new level. Yeah, no, and, and the sitar with George. No, it's, yeah. it's a really fascinating album. It's got a lot of bite to it. I mean, I think that they're sick of touring <laughs> and yes. it really comes with some some energy to it, um, some bite, as I said. But it, there's just a couple of Paul songs. I mean, I just, I don't know. I can't listen to them too often. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they just, they're a little too saccharine. You know, someone once said of Eleanor Rigby, that's kind of from that same you know, yeah. era, obviously. Yeah. Someone said with, with Eleanor Rigby, sociology rears its ugly head. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh. uh, Dan Hill, it is always a pleasure to have you. Thanks so much for taking time to join us on Behavioral Grooves. Oh, absolutely. Thank you, Sam and Kirk. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I have a free-flowing discussion about our conversation with Dan and whatever else comes into our facially recognitioning brains that go and recognize things and faces all the time. All right. This is going to be a weird grooving session. I can tell I already. I, we're off. We're off to a great start. Kurt, What uh, I'm going to ask you, what attracted your attention during our conversation with Dan? I was watching your face the entire time. <laughs> It was just amazing to see the emotions when we talked about your your idols in rock history and how yeah. you you lit up and uh, you know all yeah. of those. I think there was I, I don't remember exactly what the seven uh, different emotions are, but they were definitely joy, happiness, and whatever else they could be for you. So yeah, contempt. Well, it was. It was just, and it was kind of sad to hear that Jimi Hendrix 
and Prince were both big in contempt and anger. That was like, wow, you know. But, but I mean, that's who they are. I mean, and th- this is the thing that that struck me, right? Is this idea that you're looking at people and trying to decipher some of their inner workings and trying to understand some of the emotions that are driving them. And again, this isn't a full uh, analysis of who and what they are. This is saying, here are some of the general emotions that they're eliciting at these times. It's really apparent given given the current situation. For those of our listeners who don't know, we are based out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. And for the past three days now since the killing of uh, the police killing of George Floyd, there have been riots going on. There's been vandalism. There's been burning of buildings and, and there's been a lot of anger and that anger is showing up because uh, African-Americans are being, you know, killed by police officers uh, and it's 2020 in for non-violent crime of it not even that we're not even sure that he did. Uh, and it just is the anger that is there, the anger that that we see maybe in Jimmy's face and Prince's face is maybe a result of that. That's really interesting. The, the, the one part that I did connect to on Jimmy and Prince was this conscientiousness or, as Dan talked about, control. This idea that control, I did some recording at Paisley Park uh, back in the early 90s and uh, Prince was there all the time. He is is a, a, was a tremendously dedicated like workaholic. You know, we had sessions at nine that started at nine o'clock in the morning. Prince was in the studio. We were there at you know midnight, one o'clock on on different days. Prince was in the studio. Uh, he's he was a super organized and um, controlling guy when it came to exactly what he wanted. And so I get that. And I think that if you're an artist, that is a really good thing to have. You yeah. know, that, that that conscientiousness, that control really helps bring your vision to life. I think it's a really good thing. Well, conscientiousness overall is generally uh, identified. It's one of the big five and it's one of those aspects right. that, that right. point to typically people who who are successful in their career choices and various different things because they're conscientious. What's interesting about Dan's work is this idea of, of how emotive our faces are, right? Mm-hmm. This idea that we can demonstrate so much of our emotion through our face. And, and I liked his, his, his conversation about this where he talks about facial muscles connect directly to the skin. And so mm-hmm. it's hard for our faces to, do, uh, to not betray our, our true emotions, right? our face is going to telegraph what we're feeling yeah kind of whether we whether we for the most part again this is not a hundred percent of the time on a hundred percent of the people but for the most part our faces are going to telegraph our two our true emotions and and that's kind of cool in it, some ways it is kind of cool but then it's really sad that we are so horrible at being able to actually decipher those <laughs> facial <laughs> messages that are sent out um as yeah. you said what it's like emotional literacy is that 35% something like yeah. like when he gave those uh pictures and, and and only about a third of people could actually identify them um yeah so it, was the, it, it, it i thought that this is a big dichotomy right there's a big big it, it, uh, disconnect between the fact that our faces are, are are shouting out, "This is how I feel" at every 
every micro moment. And yet the people who are reading our faces, uh, we're only getting it about 35% of the time, maybe on a good day, a half, you know, 50% of the time. Yeah. And I go back to, you know, maybe this has some uh, greater impact at a subconscious level. So, you know, our conversation with John Barg, which is uh, another episode that will be coming out soon, we talk about some of the subconscious priming and various different things. And I think there could be some aspects of this where we interpret the facial expressions, but we can't necessarily articulate what we're here, what we're seeing. So we may be responding to that at a subconscious level uh, because we we notice it, and again, as as Dan talks about these, sometimes these are microseconds, right? These are really wow. quick, you know, facial expressions that happen, and uh, so in those moments, there might be a lot of of you know taking that in uh, inside of our brains, but we may not be able to articulate it. So I, I would assume that would be the case. I have no nothing to back that up. So uh, that's my thought and I'm, I'm sticking with it. Damn it. But it is interesting to me that if our DNA is queued up to send these signals, why aren't we better at receiving those signals? Well, that's what I'm saying. I think we are better at receiving them. I think we are on a subconscious level, on a subconscious level that we're just Mm -hmm. not good at being able to bring some of those insights into our conscious level. It, It is in the same realm as, as priming where you hold a hot cup and then you go and you're talking to somebody and you have a more trusting relationship you you feel like they're a better warmer person and yet you would never associate those those feelings that you have with the act of holding that cup it's acting at a subconscious level same thing here yeah. you're seeing those facial reactions you're responding to them but you can't you would never be able to identify why you're responding in the way you are, you're not saying, well, it's because his mouth is kind of twitched up and different things. And I, right. that means he is mad or whatever those, those signals are. It's just a, an you're just going to respond. You're going you're- to respond. And I think there has to be some evolutionary component to that. Uh, that's why we have them. Like the way uh, Dan talked about how women, you know, need to be aware of distress. They need to be super tuned into that because, uh, you know, they need to be able to, to notice when they're around the campfire and their their child is making a facial expression that's like mm, things aren't right. Uh, the mothers need to pick up on that, right? Yeah. Okay. So so then why? How? So let's just play this out. How is it then that men tend to have this? really bad ability to pick up on sadness. Well, because again, (laughs) and he talks about this evolutionary component, right? Why do you need men, uh, again, from an evolutionary perspective, were the hunters, they were moving. Um, So, picking up on sadness doesn't help in in the evolutionary survival of of the the tribe of you, of your, of your, uh, own DNA. So it just sadness slows you down. Why would you want sadness? Whereas for women and understanding like that sadness or distress, there's a piece, you have to understand that there's part of that, uh, element of, of being attuned to those, which lends itself to, to survival. Evolutionary stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it, it's one of the things that I, I've, realizing doing this show 
right? The amount of the psychology that we have inherited, the the ways and the insights that we're having, you know, you go, you look at loss aversion, you look at a number of different things, and there's an evolutionary component to much of the stuff that we're doing, um, which is fascinating. Uh, Vlad Griskovis here at the University of Minnesota even wrote a book, The Rational Animal, that basically said all this talk about biases and heuristics and, and irrational behavior isn't irrational at all. That it's it's totally biologically and DNA based, uh, coming from generations and generations of, of evolution. And um, I, I would fully agree with that. I haven't read the book. I would fully agree with that sentiment. And look at this from the perspective that in current times, some of our heuristics and biases are not as effective or rational because we no longer are living in those same environmental oh, conditions and right. within the same context. And as we've talked about, context and environment matter. Yeah, it certainly does. Uh, we could go off on a serious tangent there, but, <laughs> but. I also, but I wanted to get back to Dan. Happy people live longer. Oh, how yay. about that? <laughs> Maybe I'll live long. I'm a pretty happy guy. Pretty, you know? pretty damn happy. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. good. I, I, th I mean, and I think there's, there's obviously some good research behind that. Uh, but this is an interesting piece is, you know, all right, so happiness um, is looking at, uh, you know, what makes us happy and, and various different pieces of that. So, uh, the fascinating part, and this is interesting because part of this is, you know, looking at the Beatles, as he talked about. Oh, right. And the right. two dead Beatles versus the two live Beatles. Now, John Lennon was shot, so I don't think that is taken into account. I don't think unhappy people get shot more. Well, maybe they do. Maybe they, they, they I don't know. George Harrison died of cancer. I don't know if that's a happiness thing, but, but you know what? Uh, who knows, right? Yeah. You know, the world is complex. There's a lot of things we don't know, but it does, it is kind of interesting that the surviving Beatles are pretty happy. Yeah. Well, yeah. then that's good. That's good. We like happy, happy people. Yeah, yeah, they certainly should be. They've got more money than God, you know. So, <laughs> how much money does God have, and 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 why is that an expression that we should even care about? I think that God has just slightly less than Paul McCartney, <laughs> but more than Ringo. But well, yeah. <laughs> see, I, 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 so there you go. So Ringo should be sad because he doesn't have more money than God. Yeah, it, it's a competition. All right. Uh, any, <laughs> but we digress. All right. we digress. Is there anything else we need to cover? I, I think we are. I, we started this grieving session done. off giddy. We're going to end it giddy. I think uh, I apologize to our listeners for <laughs> this this episode of this. But uh, hopefully, the hopefully Dan was was fun, and um, yeah. I know I, I enjoyed uh, learning about the you know some of these celebrities and and what they 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 learned or what their motives were. Yeah, it was good. Okay, well, uh, thanks for listening, and hang on, we've got a bonus track coming right up. Hey Groovers, this is Tim with the bonus track for our lively discussion with Dan Hill. 
The most important things we discussed with Dan centered around his work on coding celebrity faces. We learned that even though it would make sense that celebrities are always on guard, our facial muscles are terrific truth tellers. Our facial muscles are connected directly to the skin, which makes it difficult for our faces to betray our true emotions. From the behavioral and evolutionary perspectives, we found this interesting. Our faces are unable to hide our true emotions, yet people reading our faces aren't very good at identifying what those emotions are, at least on a conscious level. Dan's research revealed that at best around 50% of the time, people do not connect facial codes to the right emotions. Our emotional literacy is generally pretty low. As expected, women are better than men at picking up emotions in other faces. And this has strong roots in behavioral and evolutionary psychology, where women had a unilateral need to notice when children were in distress. And that singular ability in women turns out to be about two times better than in men. And men don't fare much better on picking up emotions outside of distress. Men are especially bad at picking up on sadness, which again could be grounded in evolution. Hunters need to be moving while they're on the hunt, and sadness will literally slow you down. In other words, happy hunters on the savanna live to hunt another day. For our groove idea for the week, we'd like you to reflect on Dan's comments that he made about Joe Biden and Donald Trump. One of the candidates is blatant and unvarnished in his emotions, and the other more to conceal his emotions. Now, both men will likely be on the ballot in the United States presidential election in November of 2020, so give this some consideration. It may be difficult to separate your preconceived notions of each man from their facial coding, but try to answer this. Would the next president of the United States be more effective as a political leader if his facial expressions are highly revealing of his emotions, or if he can be more diplomatic and somewhat hide his emotions. That's it for our episode. And let us know what you think about that groove idea through social media. Thanks for listening and keep on grooving. Mm-hmm.